0: Hello, YA fantasy fans, and welcome to Christian Claver's YA fantasy Shadows Over London. I'm Kayla, and this is CamCat Unwrapped. I'll be introducing you to each one of our episodes of Christian Claver's Shadows Over London. It's the first book in the Empire of the House of Thorns series, which is set in Victorian London and follows Justice and the rest of the Khazric siblings through an intense human fairy war on land, at sea, and everywhere magic can reach. Shadows Over London is one of those unputdownable books that keep you up at night, reading or listening well past your bedtime. It's a book to live in. Justice isn't your average 15 year old girl. She is an irrepressible scoundrel and she always has a plan. She adores her father, a revered sea captain. But her world falls apart when her father forcibly bundles the entire family into carriages in the middle of the night and carts them off to a strange mansion on the outskirts of Victorian London.
1: Camcat Publishing presents Shadows Over London by Christian Claver. Narrated by Fiona Hardingham. To Katie Myths are public dreams, dreams are private myths. Joseph Campbell. Prologue The Fairy King. Some dreams are so true that it doesn't matter if they actually happened that way or not. They're so true that they've happened more than once. My dreams about the fairy were like that. Most of the rest of England got their first glimpse of the fairy on the night London fell. But not me. I saw my first fairy ten years before that, on my sixth birthday. My name is Justice Kaserick and my family was all tangled up with the fairy even before the invasion. Because I'd been born on Boxing Day, the day after Christmas, Father always made a grand affair of my birthday so that it wasn't all swallowed up by the other holidays. That's why, long after Christmas supper had come and gone, I stood at the frosted window of my room, looking out into the darkness, trying to guess what kind of surprise Father had in store for my sixth birthday. I was sure that something wonderful was coming. Maybe a pony, or even ponies. I crept quietly out of my room. I didn't want to wake Faith, my older sister. I didn't see or hear anyone on the top floors. But then I heard movement from down in the front hall. Father! He clicked his pocket watch closed, tucked it back into his dark waistcoat, and pulled the heavy black naval coat off the hook by the door. I was sure he'd turn around and see me crouched on the stairs, but he only stood a moment in the shrouded half-moonlight before opening the front door. A cool mist rolled noiselessly past his ankles as he went out. I was in luck. Where else would father be going except to feed the ponies? I pulled on my rubber boots and threw my heavy blue woolen coat over my nightgown, determined to follow. When I opened the door and looked out into the front garden, the mist hung everywhere in soft carpets of moonlit fleece. Father was nowhere in sight, but I could hear him crunching ahead of me. I paused, sensing even then that some steps took you further than others. The enormity of my actions lay heavily on me. The comforting, warm interior of the house called for me to come back inside. It was not too late to go back. I could return to the rest of my family, content with a life filled with tea settings, mantelpiece clocks, anti-macassas, and other normal, sensible notions. The proper thing would have been to go back inside, to bed. I remember shaking my head, sending my braids, dancing. I followed father outside into the still and misty night. We went across the front garden, past shrubs and frozen pools, and descended the hill into the snow-laden pines. His crunching footsteps carried back to me in the still air. I followed by stepping in the holes he'd left in the snow to make less noise, jumping to match his long stride. The stables lay behind the house, but clearly we weren't heading there. We lived in the country then, amidst a great deal of farmland with clumps of forest around. The silence grew heavier deeper as we descended into the trees, and a curious lassitude swept over me as I followed farther through the tangled woods. The air was sharp and filled with a clean smell of ice and pine. On the other side of a dip in the land, we should have emerged into a large and open field, only we didn't. The field wasn't there. Instead, we kept going down through more and more snow-laden trees. The treetops formed a nearly solid canopy, sixty or seventy feet above us, but with a vast and open space underneath. The thick shafts of moonlight slanted down through silvered air into emerald shadows, each tree a stately pillar in that wide open space. I worried about Father catching me following him, but he never even turned around. Always. He went down, down, down into the forest, into what felt like another world entirely. Even I knew we couldn't still be in the English countryside. You could just feel it. I also knew that following him wasn't about ponies anymore, and I might have given up and gone home, only I had no idea how to find my way back. After a short time, we came to an open green hollow where I crouched at the edge of a ring of trees and blinked my eyes at the sudden brightness. The canopy opened up to the nighttime sky and moonlight filled the empty hollow like cream poured into a cup. This place had a planned feel, the circle of trees shaped just so, the long black trunk lying neatly in the exact center of a field of green grass like a long table, and all of it inexplicably free of snow. Two pale boulders sat on either side like chairs. The silence felt deeper here, older, expectant. The place was waiting. Father lit a cigarette and stood smoking, a thin wisp of smoke curled up and into the night sky. Then the fairy king arrived. First there was emptiness, and then, without any sign of motion, a hulking, towering figure stood on the other side of the log, standing as if he'd always been there, waiting. I'd read enough of the right kinds of books to recognize him as a fairy king, right off, and I shivered. The fairy king looked like a shambling beast on its back legs, with huge, tined antlers that rose from his massive skull. He wore a wooden crown, nearly buried by a black mane, thick as lamb's fleece, that flowed into a forked beard. His long face was a gaunt wooden mask, with blackened slits for eyes and a harsh, narrow opening for a mouth. Except it wasn't a mask, because it moved. The mouth twitched and the jaw muscles clenched as he regarded the man in front of him. Finally, he inclined his head in a graceless welcome. He wore a cloak like a swath of forest, laid across his back, made entirely of thick wild grass, weeds and brambles, with a rich black undercoat of loam where a silk lining would show. Underneath the cloak, he wore armour that might once have been bright copper, now with rampant verdigris. He leaned on the pommel of a wide-bladed granite sword. The fairy king and father regarded each other for a long time before they each sat down. A chessboard with pieces of carved wood and bone sat suddenly between them. Again, there was no sense of movement, only a sudden understanding that the board must have always been there, waiting. They began to play. The fairy king hesitated, reached to advance his white king's pawn, then stopped. His leathery right hand was massive, nearly the size of the board, far too large for this task. He shifted awkwardly and used his more normal-sized left hand. Father advanced a pawn immediately in response. The fairy king sat and viewed the board with greater deliberation. He finally reached out with his left hand to make his move, and then stopped. He shifted in his seat, uncertain, then finally advanced his knight. I could feel others watching with me, invisible ghosts hidden in the trees, the weight of their interest hung palpably in the air. Whatever the outcome of this game, it was important in a way you couldn't help but feel. However long it took, this timeless shuffling of pieces, the watchers would wait, and I waited with them. With only a nightgown on under my coat, crouching in the snow, I should have been freezing, but I didn't feel the cold. I only felt the waiting, and the waiting consumed me. Father and the Fairy King had each moved their forces into the centre of the board, aligning and realigning in constant readiness for the inevitable clash. Now Father sliced into the black pawns with surgical precision, starting an escalating series of exchanges. Around us, it began to snow. As the game went on, Father and the Fairy King lined their captures neatly on the side of the board. Father looked to be considerably better off. The Fairy King grew more and more angry, and he squeezed and kneaded the log with his massive right hand so that the wood cracked and popped. Occasional bursts of wood fragments flew to either side. Father's only reaction to this violent display was a long, slow smile. He took another Turkish cigarette, calmly from a cigarette case, and lit it. I was suddenly very chilled. That kind of calm wasn't natural. The smoke from father's cigarette drifted placidly upwards. His moves were immediate, decisive, while the fairy kings became more and more hesitant as the game went on. The smile on father's face grew. I watched, and the forest watched with me. Then the fairy king snarled, jumped up, and brought his massive fist down on the board like a mallet. Bits of the board, chess pieces, and wood splinters flew out into the snow. Twice more he mauled the log, gouging out huge hunks of wood in his fury. Then he spun with a swiftness shocking in so large a person, and yanked his huge sword out of the snow. He brought it down in a deadly arc that splintered the log like a lightning strike. Debris and splinters had flown around Father like a ship's deck hit by a full broadside of cannonballs. But Father didn't even flinch. Two broken halves of smoldering log lay in the clearing. Perhaps next time, Father said, standing up the first words either of them had spoken. He brushed a few splinters from his coat. The fairy king stared, quivering, his wooden face twisted suddenly with grief. Then his legs gave out and he collapsed in the snow, all his impotent rage spent. He sat, slumped with his mismatched hands on his knees, the perfect picture of abject defeat. He didn't so much as stir when father turned his back and left. I couldn't tear my gaze away from the rough and powerful shape, slouched heavily and immobile in the snow. White clumps were already starting to gather on his arms, shoulders, head, and antlers, as if he might never move again. Father climbed directly to my hiding place and stood, looking down at me with amusement in his glacial blue eyes. I'd forgotten all about hiding. He warned me to keep silent with a gloved finger to his lips then put a hand on my shoulder and steered me away from the hollow. Father fished his watch out of the waistcoat pocket and checked the time as we climbed back up the slope. We walked for a bit, surrounded only by the sound of crunching snow and the spiced scent of father's smoke. Well, he said finally, I've always encouraged you to be curious, Little Justice, but this is a surprise. Did you follow me all the way from home? He didn't sound cross at all, only curious. So it was a family trait. Yes, I looked back the way we'd come. It was hard to imagine that I was the biggest surprise of this night. You must be cold, he said. Yes? I was cold, suddenly. Father draped his coat around me, then picked me up and carried me like a princess. The soft wool of his coat was warm and comforting, as were the familiar scents that clung to it-the Turkish tobacco with cloves and ginger, ordinary, familiar smells that sluiced away the strangeness of the night. Father, what was that horrible thing? I asked. Oh, not so horrible, justice, not really, though I suppose a church might not agree, but then you'll learn to think for yourself. And not take their word, eh? Yes, father, I said. I knew exactly what the church would have to say about a creature like that, but maybe that wasn't so important. Well, he said after a time, now I have a problem. This needs to be a secret, you see. But I know how little girls talk. Perhaps a bribe? What would it take to keep this our secret? He didn't need the bribe, and we both knew it. I would have done anything for him. But he'd asked. So I said, A pony? He laughed. Well, I don't have a pony on me, but here, hang on tight. He shifted my weight a little so that he could fish around in his coat pocket. He handed me a chess piece from the game. One of his knights. At least it looked like one of the wooden pieces from the game back in the hollow, But how could it be? The fairy king had bashed them all to bits and I hadn't seen father pick anything up when he left. Still, there it was. Would this horsey do, he said. I looked closer. The piece wasn't just a horse's head, but an entire stallion carved in loving detail. It reared up, riderless, wild and beautiful, more than beautiful. The dark wood gleamed, reminding me of the glossy flank of a living horse. It's wonderful, I said, taking it in both hands. It was warm to the touch. I couldn't feed a regular horse anyway. You are very wise for such a small child, father said. Does it have a name, father? Why, of course it does. All important things have names, Remember your promise here not to tell a soul about what you saw. And I'm sure we'll discover her name together. A sudden sleepiness overcame me. It felt impossibly late, near morning. He must have carried me all the way home because my next memory was father climbing the steps inside our house and then lowering me into bed. He moved carefully so as to not wake Faith, my older sister. Moments or hours later, I could never be sure. I sat up. Father was gone. I was in my nightdress only, with no sign of my coat. In the bed across the room, Faith was in the deepest kind of sleep, immobile, as if it would take a prince to wake her. But the sweet smell of father's Turkish cigarette still lingered in the air. I looked for the chess piece, but to my disappointment, there was nothing in the bed, nothing on the dresser. There was no sign of the chess piece anywhere. So, for many years, I discounted the memory of that night in the forest, believing it only a lovely and somewhat frightening dream. I didn't find out how wrong that idea was, until much later. Chapter One father comes home. It wasn't until I was fifteen that I thought seriously of the Fairy King again. We were in London now, had been for six months now, so that mother could be closer to her doctors. This meant trading the sun-dappled glades, small brooks, and ageless mystery of the woods in the countryside for the raucous, vibrant, smoky, fog-drenched, teeming bustle of London. The dim street lanterns shone dully in the darkened rain-slick streets, illuminating little vague shapes of people, horses, carriages, and other things move like shadows out there. I pressed my face against the leaded glass, trying to see more, but not having much luck. There was activity in the street beneath me, our groom helping faith into another carriage that would whisk her to some fashionable part of town for yet another ball. Same as last night, and the night before. With Henry sent off to Harrow's boarding school, and Faith gone so often, it would be another night of having the house to myself. Faith's laugh drifted up from the street, and I saw her stop and say something to the groom, her hand briefly on his arm. He nodded eagerly, completely besotted with her. Everyone was. Before London... Faith and I had been inseparable, but her presentation to court and moving to London had changed all that. Now I hardly ever saw her. She was a debutante and part of London society. Now the house would be empty, with no one to talk to. Mother would be here, of course, but that wasn't much help. Neither was the loathsome Mrs. Westerly, Mother's maid. None of the servants inside were that interesting, and I wasn't often allowed outside. Father, of course, was away at sea. I heard Mother's slow footsteps pass in the hall outside my room and thought briefly of dashing out and trying to talk to her, engage her in something, anything. But the idea faded as quickly as it had come, smothered by the remembrance of a hundred other failed attempts. Since Faith's introduction to court, Mother had focused all of her declining faculties on Faith's progress in society. I was only a year behind Faith, and should soon be introduced to the court, and to society, myself. You could always hear the capital S and italics when Mother said, society. The problem was, I didn't have knack for society, and we all knew it. Superficially, I didn't look so very different from Faith. Both of us were slender, and we both had the same pale gold hair. But while Faith simply reeked of coquettish elegance, I was too curious about everything, Mother said, and it made my face all thin and ferrety. Also, I asked too many questions. Boys don't like questions, men even less so. With my ear to the door, I waited for several minutes after I heard the footsteps pass, then stole out into the darkened hall. I had two places of refuge, The first was Father's study. The lock was an ornate brass monstrosity, shaped like a widespread elm that was harder to pick than any other lock in the house. But I'd had lots of practice. Once inside, I locked the door again and tugged one of the carpets to cover the bottom of the door so I could light a candle. Then I pulled out Father's collection of maps and nautical charts. The room always smelled of leather books and Father's cigarettes. I knew I'd be safe in here. Father had been an officer in the Crimean War before leaving the service and becoming a merchant captain for the East India Trading Company. Being a sea captain meant he spent more time sailing in India and back than he did in London. But whenever I was here in his study, he didn't seem so far away. I walked to the great map on the wall and traced Father's course with my fingers. Coming back from India would be faster now with steam power and the Suez Canal, but that didn't seem to change the fact that father was almost never home. He simply commanded more voyages than he had before. I left the wall and pulled out some of the books of maps that offered more detail. Flipping through the pages, I found England first and noticed a few with pencil marks outlining a number of the railroads, which was curious. But England and her coastline, Weren't as interesting to me as more foreign places. I'd already memorized most of the English coast. Now, the maps showing India, China, the Americas, these were the magical places to me. Oh, to sail to those places! I imagine standing on the deck of a ship some day, with a rocking horizon stretched out before me, with a hold full of cotton, silk, indigo dye, tea, or opium to sell. I could make all the money I might need to stay free. Forget society and their chaste and interminable little dinners. I would eat salted pork, ship's biscuit, fruit from the islands, or fish pulled up from the surrounding seas. I would love and marry who I wished. Perhaps no one at all, if that was what I wanted. I could go anywhere, meet anybody, be anybody instead of living amidst the inescapable, awkward and stifling life in London society with nothing to live for but my husband's dreary successes or even drearier failures and nothing whatsoever of my own. A bit of stray street lamp glow leaked in from the street. I took father's navy coat and an old battered hat from the coat rack and slid open the study window. Another marvellous feature of father's study no one came in here when Father wasn't home, so there was little risk of discovery. I went out to my second refuge, the roof. With Father's coat and hat protecting me from the cold, wet, and soot, I could sit and watch the will o wisps of the gas street lights down below. Carriage lanterns moved in the fog, and the call of cabbies' cries and the clatter of horses' hooves echoed all around. The entire city seemed alive and spread out beneath me. I sat above it all, wrapped in the anonymity of London's yellowed and ageless fog. After a while, I climbed back into father's study and pulled the leather-clad Mariner's Diary off the shelf. I looked a little at the merchant ships like father captained now, but turned quickly to the navy vessels, which father had worked on and commanded years ago. There were a great many pictures in this edition and I entertained myself for a short time identifying how each was rigged, where the wind must be coming from and what the sea must have been like based on the position and disposition of the sail. I lost myself in the drawings of sail and rigging and the minutia of life at sea and finally fell asleep in father's big leather chair. At first, I dreamed of running close-hauled on a fair wind. Next, I dreamed of the fairy king sitting in a strange forest, immobile and covered in snow. I woke slowly and sat a moment, drowsily staring at shadows on the ceiling. Morning. It was bloody morning already. I jumped to my feet and the mariner's diary crashed to the floor. Scooping it up, I smoothed the pages, and went to put it back on the shelf, but stopped, staring. There, in a corner of the room, sat a chess set that hadn't been there before. At least, I hadn't seen it. The room had been dark. Seeing it sent a shiver through me, bringing back both last night's dream and following father in the woods so long ago. It wasn't just any chess set, either. It was the chess set the same set of carved wood and bone I'd seen in my dream in the forest. Only suddenly, I was sure it hadn't been a dream at all. Someone was in the middle of a game, with a bunch of captured pieces lined up off to the side. I reached out with a shaking hand and picked up one of these. The night. The warm and polished surface tugged at something deep, deep inside of me until my legs felt weak. The details of the horse were perfect just as I remembered from that night in the woods. Father had given it to me then, hadn't he? And then I'd lost it. I clutched it tightly. Now that I'd found it again, I didn't want to ever give it up. I tucked the chess piece into a pocket of my dressing gown. Dazed as I was, my gaze swept the room to see what else I'd missed in the darkness last night. A smoking stand sat in easy reach, filled with recent ash. That's why the room always smelled so strongly of father's cigarettes. There are a number of new items on the bookshelves. Some of the older books on the top shelf were gone, replaced by collection after collection of children's storybooks, fairy tales and ghost stories. The shelf at the very bottom held Curios. Father had been home recently, within the last month, and hadn't told anyone. It had been months since I'd seen the room during daylight and gotten a good look around, hadn't it? None of this was here then. So, someone had come into this room recently, smoked, muddled with the books and added things to father's collection. It had to be father. I imagined him sitting at his desk, smoking, pondering one of his maps while the rest of us slept. I was hurt beyond belief that he'd been home and hadn't told me. I knelt down to look at the new things on the bottom shelf. The closest object was a jar sealed with wax, which I picked up. Inside, suspended in amber fluid, a tiny, lifeless girl, washed slowly back and forth. Both horrified and irresistibly drawn to get a better look, I held it up to the light. She was smaller than my hand with delicate wings like a dragonfly. Her face was beautiful, but feral, even in death. The long red hair on her head fell down past her shoulders, but she also had tufts that ran down her spine and along the backs of her arms and legs. Fine hairs that floated like seaweed in the preserving fluid. Her hands were grotesque, barbed and curved talons that dangled down to her knees like oversized butcher's hooks. But the worst was her mouth, which gaped open to show rings of teeth like a river lamprey, a freakish combination of beautiful and repulsive that made me shiver. A small card next to the jar labelled it simply Fairy Pix." There were other objects there, a collar, elephant figurines, a bowl of broken stained glass in green and red, and a sextant. These things also reminded me of the time in the woods, convincing me even more that my memory of the Fairy King hadn't been just a dream. I jumped to something heavy, thumped downstairs. I wasn't expecting any of the family up, and it didn't sound like the servants. I needed to get out of here before someone caught me. Closing the door of the study behind me, I went back out into the darkly panelled hallway, half expecting the fairy king to be there waiting for me, next to an umbrella stand, perhaps. A high window at the far end of the hall let in more wan light. It couldn't be too many minutes past dawn. The family portraits in the hall glared at me accusingly. Father, mother, Joshua, Benedict, Faith, myself, and lastly, Henry, the youngest. I glared back. Another loud noise from downstairs, a door slamming, I thought. Loud voices down there too, lots of voices. I glanced at the stairs that led down to the front hall. It wouldn't do to get caught out here by Mother or Mrs. Westerly, but curiosity drew me to the stairway like a mouse to the trap. I looked down into the front hallway to see dozens of men in white breeches and rough jackets, clearly sailors, passing back and forth in raucous industry. The door to the street was propped open letting in noise from the street and a cold draught I could feel all the way up here. There was a knot of men standing in the foyer, one of them giving orders. Warm clothes, he said. It's a long trip, and they will need them before the day is out. Father. The man giving orders was Father. I clutched the railing, looking down at him, and felt my legs about to give way. Despite my discovery that he'd been in the study, actually seeing him in the flesh when his ship was supposed to be halfway across the ocean was still a shock. My nightgown was rumpled and my hair a fright. I still had father's coat on too, but I didn't care. I tore down the stairs. Another sailor made to grab me, but I was already past him and barreled right into father with a happy little shriek. You're home, I shouted. Why didn't you tell anyone? There's my little justice, he said warmly. Of course you'd be the first to greet me. Good God, girl, you're getting taller. You were already home, I said, days ago, maybe weeks. He looked at me a minute and nodded. That's quite true. I stamped my foot. Why didn't you tell anyone? His only answer was a secretive smile. He turned to a man in an old-style indigo officer's uniform. Have them down here in two minutes. Two minutes, Mr. Kane. Not a second more. Aye, aye, sir. The officer rushed up the stairs, a line of sailors in tow. A few more sailors strong-armed our sleepy-eyed servants back into the kitchen, while yet another pair wrestled a clanking barrel past us. They dropped it with a metallic crash in the hallway and pried it open. Then each of them pulled two handfuls of iron spikes out and flung them down the hall with an enormous racket. They dragged the keg further into the house and disappeared. I gawked at that a second, then turned back to glare at Father, who still hadn't answered me. Father always looked more like a gentleman than a sea captain, dark suit, black satin cravat, and a gold watch chain dangling from his vest. His face was tightly set, a man engaged in an unsavoury task. I know I've always raised you to think for yourself, he said to me, but we're going to do some things that won't make a lot of sense today. Can you follow orders, even when they don't make any sense to you? Can you trust me? I didn't even blink. Yes, father, of course. There's a good girl. I'll hold you to that. I brought coats for the others, but I see you've got one. Good. We have to get everyone out of London. It's not safe. Where are we going? I said. But father just gave me a look. No questions was what that look said. Racek? mother called out from the top of the stairs. Two men had her by either elbow and were ushering her firmly down. Her skin was pale, but her dark eyes were unfocused, glazed with the effects of her medicine. She was deeply confused, but still regal somehow. Coppery hair drifted around her in glorious disarray, a guttering candle flame. Father's face lifted, and then his mouth hardened. A flurry of emotions passed across his face, and then his expression was guarded and stern again. "Rche," Mother said again, "Your home. What in the world is going on? Are these men under your orders?" Her head lolled as the sailors half carried her down the stairs. Father met them at the bottom. He looked her over quickly. Martine, dear, father said softly, "You look pale." Another few weeks, and they would have had my wife out from under my very nose. Mother looked at me standing next to Father, and her eyes focused briefly on me with sudden anger. Justice! I should have known you'd be involved. Two peas in a pod. The lies, the secrets. No wonder you were always his favourite. Father's eyebrows shot up in surprise, looking at both Mother and me in turn. I didn't do anything. I said. I looked at father in appeal, trying to keep my bottom lip from quivering while my heart fell. Mother's anger with me had been going on for forever, it seemed. And try as I would, I couldn't get her to forgive me. I've kept things from you, father said to mother. But I'm not doing that now. We're in terrible danger and I'm trying to save us. I hope you all see that someday. Mother gave father one last look of disgust. I can't bear it. I just can't, she said. She shook her head, refusing now to meet his gaze. Father nodded at the two men holding her, and they dragged her towards the front door. Another man waited with a coat, yet another man scurried by with mother's medicine bag. Father's face, watching them go, was hard. Immediately, Two more men brought Faith down. What's going on? She whispered as they escorted her to the front door and wrapped her in a coat. Are you part of this? I shook my head, but she glared spitefully back at me. I bet you are. Just like Mother, assuming this was my fault. At least with Faith, I knew that she believed the worst of me because Mother did. I wished I knew why Mother felt that way. They took Faith out into the street. Because I was off to one side, I was the only one who could see down the kitchen hallway. The greasy brown hair, pockmarked face and hostile gaze of Mrs. Westerly appeared for a moment in the kitchen doorway, peering vulturously out. Father might have seen her if he turned around, but he didn't. He was talking urgently to two more sailors. Westerly saw father and her black eyes narrowed into a shocking expression of hatred, Her mouth opened in a drawn-out and silent stoat's hiss. Father turned suddenly and saw her. Her, he snapped at his men. Fetch her out here. Mrs. Westerly hissed again, this time loudly, and disappeared into the kitchen. Four of the burly men hustled after her, but they came out of the kitchen a thirty seconds later, shaking their heads. Bolted, sir, one of them reported. Out of the back door and into the street, maybe. We couldn't find her anywhere. Father nodded, clearly unhappy, but not sure what to do about it. Finally, he seemed to remember my presence and nodded at me. You go now, Justice, he said, like you promised. But... Come, Miss Justice, a soft voice at my elbow said. You did promise. A small, young, blond man with a pointed yellow beard took my arm. He wore an oxblood suit with jacket and waistcoat and yellow bits of disheveled hair peeked out from underneath an equally oxblood derby. Who are you? I said. He gave me a sly grin, and the yellow moustache and beard quivered. You're quite right to insist on introductions, he said. He had a voice of rough honey and a Parisian lilt. My name is Sebastian Sands, magician. There was an odd Aristocratic courtesy about him that made me revise my first estimate of his age upwards by ten or twenty years. Thirty? Forty? I couldn't tell, but I let him escort me out anyway. Outside, yellow walls of fog pressed all around. The streets smelled of garbage and standing water, like London always did. Unseen hansoms and footsteps rattled by in the fog, heard once, then lost again. London was never still. A dimly seen crowd had gathered to watch the strange goings-on, despite the early hour. More sailors were unloading clanking barrels from a cart, but Mr. Sands steered me around them before I could get a better look. A man standing guard opened the door of a large, reinforced carriage. It looked like something to imprison the Queen, with iron bands across the panelling, bars on the windows, but no glass. The guard had both cutlass and pistol. Even the Royal Navy doesn't hand out weapons unless action is coming, I said. What enemy are you expecting in the middle of London? The sailor's face remained like stone. I looked back at Mr. Sands, who tugged at his little beard thoughtfully. Justice, he said. That's a peculiar name for a girl, isn't it? It was my father's idea, I said. I think he wanted all the virtues, only he didn't have enough girls for seven. We had an older sister, Prudence, only she died as a baby. I've only got the one sister now. Only one sister, he said. Something about the idea seemed to amuse him. Yes, I said, trying to match his flip manner. Maybe if I'd had a few sisters before me, someone else could have been justice, and I'd have been temperance or charity or maybe even faith. Only faced already Faith, so no, Mr. Sands shook his head sadly. You couldn't possibly be any of those, I'm afraid. With those astonishing words, he ushered me up into the carriage and closed the door. The lock on the outside slid home. Chapter Two The Storm I pushed at the locked door, which was stupid because I'd heard them lock it. But I did it anyway. Nothing. What's happening? Faith said. Did Father tell you what's going on? I don't know. A hope sprang into my head, prompted by all the sailors and casks and sailcloth and the smell of salt. Maybe we're going to see. Pretend all you like, Faith said. I'm sure whatever this is, you know more about it than you are telling. You like secrets more than anything, don't you? Isn't that right, mother? For answer, mother opened her bag, a foul thing of oil-stained leather, and took out one of the small vials that held her medicine. The interior of the carriage smelled immediately of oranges and licorice, somehow gone acrid and foul. She took a small sip and said to Faith, Don't bother fighting it, dear. Men rule the world, and the best that woman can do is find one they can trust. I wish the hell that I had. Of course we can trust father, I protested. You don't know, Mother sneered. You don't know what he's done to me, to all of us. She took another long swallow and then seemed to lapse into a silent torpor, ignoring us and staring out the carriage window at the rolling yellow fog. Faith pressed her face against the bars, shouting out, Father! Father, where are you taking us? More shouts came from outside, drew closer. Mother! Faith shrieked. Make them stop! But Mother didn't respond at all. She just sat there, staring vacantly out into the fog, even when the carriage door opened again. Three of Father's men shoved my brother Henry inside with us. It needn't have taken three. Henry wasn't very large. He was also stunned and completely unresisting. They pushed him in and he fell down on the carriage floor. I have three brothers, but my two older brothers went away to school when I was much younger and I never got to know them very well. But Henry was a year younger than I and always dear to my heart as he, Faith, and I had grown up together. Henry sat up, his sandy hair tousled, his eyes wide with fear. He was still in his bedclothes, same as the rest of us. Well, most of us, anyway if you didn't count father's coat and hat, that I was wearing. Law, Henry said. Justice? Faith? Mother? What's going on? I was in my bed at Harrow's when they pulled me out, bundled into a carriage and then out into the street, and now here, into another carriage? What is all this? We don't know, I said. Henry moved and there was the clink of heavy metal. I leaned forward. Henry was wearing manacles. Henry! I gasped. You're in irons. Why? Because father's lost his mind, Faith said. That's why. I resisted, Henry said. Fought like a pirate when they pulled me out of bed. I did. Then, seeing our stunned expressions, he smiled sheepishly. All right, then. I panicked when they pulled me out of bed, screamed like a girl, and bit one on accident. He's the one that called me a whole mess of foul names, and then put these on me. He laughed ruefully. I'm not even sure Father knows about it. I only saw a glimpse of him when they pulled me out of the other carriage and threw me in this one. Faith, I said, give me a hairpin. I didn't wear any, never did really. But Faith always had some in, even when she went to bed. Come on now, I said, give me a hairpin, won't you? Faith stared. I shook my open hand at her until she finally pulled one of the pins out of her hair and handed it over. Lord! Henry said. Really? You can get these off? They'd chafe something terrible. Just hold still, I said. The pin wasn't very strong, and it was a heavy lock, but slow pressure got the lock open at last. How did you do that? Henry asked. I held the bent hairpin out to Faith, but she only looked at it and said stiffly, Where is Father taking us? I know you know. I don't know, I said. It dawned on me that if I paid more attention to father's maps of England, I might have some idea. But I hadn't. Yes, you do, Faith said, glaring at me. She ignored the hairpin. Henry looked at me questioningly, but I shook my head and he nodded. The two lanterns hung on the outside of the carriage provided the only light, but his open, honest face practically shone with trust. It had been months since I'd seen Henry last, and I was worried that he might have changed in school grown apart from us. But he was just as I remembered him. He got up and brushed the sandy hair back from his face. His sleeping clothes were grey wool, worn, and two sizes too big for him, clearly a sign from harrows. Maybe it's some kind of mistake, Henry said. Maybe father just made a mistake, is all. Father knows what he's doing, I said. He says we have to get away. Get away from what, Justice? Faith said. The past year's distance between us was all summed up in her cold and suspicious look. I could only lift my hands helplessly. I didn't know. Faith scoffed and turned away. Are you injured, Mother? Faith said. She sat carefully next to her. Mother didn't answer. She was still staring fixedly out the window. When Faith gently took Mother's hands in hers, Mother muttered something unintelligible and closed her eyes. Mother? Faith said softly. What do you know about this? Do you know what father's up to? Still no answer. Law, Henry said. Is she always like this? It's not her fault, Faith snapped, angry tears in her eyes. It's a medicine. Sometimes it makes her like this. What kind of bloody medicine is that? Henry said. A concoction of Mrs. Westerly's, I said distastefully. She always comes out of it in a few hours, Faith said. When she does, she'll know what to do. I didn't want to wait that long. I scrambled to the door, trying to get a better look at the hinges and the latch in the weak lantern light. Father clearly wanted us to stay here, so I would, but it didn't hurt to look. The latch was on the outside, but I might be able to finesse it open from this side with some kind of tool if only I had one. I noticed two of Father's men watching me through the window bars. I watched them back. Two other men were switching out the carriage horses, so we probably had a long trip ahead of us. I prayed that father would explain himself soon. He had to, didn't he? He couldn't lock us all up without some kind of explanation, could he? I touched the bars over the window. They were black, rough, and very cold. Disturbingly hideous, rousing equally disturbing feelings since my family and I were the ones behind them. Whatever Father was doing, he wasn't taking things lightly. Father materialized out of the fog and spoke to one of the men. I kept hoping that he'd come over and offer some kind of explanation to this mad scene, but he never did. The officer, Kane appeared behind him. Now that I got a closer look at the uniform, it didn't look at all familiar, not like any uniform I'd seen before. A deep and vivid indigo with wide, white lapels Heavy cuffs and white frogging cord down the front. More cord ran down the back, white on blue, like a string of barbed thorns. Certainly not English. Not any of the other European sea powers either. I was sure of that. Two epaulets marked him as a captain of at least three years' seniority. Mr. Sands joined them, and the three men conferred briefly. Mr. Sands looking tiny next to father and the equally tall cane. Father was issuing orders to Sands, who nodded dutifully. I thought I caught the names of my other two brothers, Joshua and Benedict. Then Father and Cain walked towards the carriage. Father met my eyes through the barred window, but didn't say anything. He looked like a haunted man. He put his hand briefly on the window frame of the carriage as he went by, but that was all. He joined Cain out of view in the driver's seat. Mr. Sands stood alone in the fog a moment. Then he clapped his hands and a white shape clip clopped itself out of the fog, as if it had been waiting off stage for his signal. Oh, I said, look at Mr. Sands's horse. It's magnificent. The stallion gleamed all over, an alabaster glory in defiance of the dirty streets, proud and tall, with a matching white saddle chased with gold inlay. Sands mounted and leaned over and spoke a word into the horse's ear. It might have been a joke from the look on Sands' face, but the horse quivered with excitement. A light touch and word from Mr. Sands, and the stallion bolted forward. The yellow fog swallowed them at once, and they were gone. Mr. Who? Faith said. How do you know his name? Mr. Sands, I said. He says he's a magician. You seem to know a great deal more about this than the rest of us, Faith said suspiciously. I listened, I shot back. While the rest of you were fighting with him, I followed orders and listened. You, Mother hissed, and I jumped. I hadn't even realized she was awake, but she had her eyes open now, glaring at me. Her head still lolled to the side as if too heavy for her to pick up. You're helping him do this to us, she whispered. I won't forget that. Her expression now was so hateful, it sent a winter's chill right through me. Faith turned a heavily lidded gaze on me too, as if Mother's condemnation was all she needed to condemn me too. I couldn't make my mouth work to deny her condemnation either. I was just as trapped as the rest of them, wasn't I? Except that I told Father I'd obey. No one had forced me to do that and none of the others would have. I was sure. I won't forget, Mother repeated. She closed her eyes again, shutting us all out. Mother hated me now. It had been bad before between us, but this burned our bridges entirely. Mother's shout to get the horses moving made us all jump. A sudden jerk and the carriage rattled into motion. We turned a corner at once, and we nearly hit another cab. Such was our rush. I saw the familiar face of the other cabbie, Mr. Divers, up on his handsome with a stalwart and friendly roan, Hercules, out front. Mr. Divers had to yank on the reins to prevent a collision between our two vehicles, and man and horse watched us rattle by at an unsafe speed. Mr. Divers' whiskered face was full of surprise, and then we rattled on, and I couldn't see them any more. We... Were underway. When I think about that carriage ride, a sort of mist descends. I remember the fright and uncertainty, but there was an undercurrent of certainty too. Nothing too terrible could happen. I was sure because Father was behind it. Often, the sweet and spicy scent of Father's cigarettes would drift back to us from driver's seat, and that reassured me. Whatever reasons Father had for dragging us out of our London apartments. They would make perfect sense once we found out what they were. We watched the counties slide away, the dark buildings and early morning foot traffic and trade of Southwark first, then nearly identical Lambeth, and finally into the rural areas of South London, where the buildings and streetlights melted into open fields and trees, brilliant with full colors. None of us spoke. There didn't seem any point. I was rubbing my thumb against the chess piece in my pocket so much the tip of my thumb was getting sore. We stopped once briefly at an isolated farm where father and Kane drove the carriage past an abandoned farmhouse and into a large barn. The doors on the barn were swung shut so that we had only the lantern light to see by before we heard the bolt drawn back on the carriage door. We emerged, half blind in the cold darkness, finding no sign of father, only Cain waiting for us. He had his pistol out, eyeing us as if we were serious, hardened criminals, rather than three children and an ill woman. He pointed the pistol at a dirty latrine in the corner. He didn't speak, and there was no sign of father. Where are you? Faith started, but Cain cocked the weapon and pointed it with such a stern gaze that her question trickled off. No questions, he said or you all get back into the carriage without using the loo. Not even Faith had anything to say to that, though if looks could kill, there wouldn't have been enough of Cain to sweep out of a barn. Faith's glare notwithstanding, Cain had us back in the detestable and somewhat ripe carriage in less than ten minutes. I got a glimpse of father as he climbed back up into the driver's box, but the lengths to which he'd gone to avoid even talking to us gave me a gloomy chill. Cain shouted at the horses and we were underway again, down another nameless muddy road. Faith caught my eye and gave me a look the condemned father and anyone foolish enough to follow his orders. Our carriage thumped and thudded over dirt roads now, and other than the drizzle of rain and the splash of a lantern swinging from the top of the carriage, our prison wagon might have been the only thing moving on the whole countryside. The sky was so dark and grey that several times I woke and thought we'd ridden the entire day away. Inside, we four prisoners were cramped, bruised, outrageously grubby, and even more dismal than the landscape, which was saying a great deal. Mother, insensate in the corner seat, now for hours, moaned softly. What's wrong with her? I said. How come no one told me she'd gotten this bad? Mother said not to, Faith said. She was rifling through Mother's medicine bag again with an expression of bitter helplessness. She didn't want anyone to even talk about it. She was usually fine a few hours into the morning after her medicine. She'd be herself all the way through evening on a good day. I'm sure she needs something, only there are so many different bottles here. I don't know which to give her. Mrs. Westerly always administers it at home. Oh, Mother, wake up! The carriage turned now, and the horses started labouring up a steep incline. The sky above us rumbled in warning, long and deep and low. Cain yelled and drove the horses harder, cracking the whip repeatedly. The road levelled off and we picked up speed, a great deal of speed. I could see the same thought in Henry and Faith's eyes, the same fear. Too fast, too fast. The wheels hissed through puddles and banged in the road, each jarring impact rattling our spines all the way up to our teeth, and still we picked up speed. We flew now, far faster than anyone should go. Our wheels were going to smash themselves to pieces any minute. The rain overtook us. We could see the storm through the rear window coming fast. Half a minute later, it had caught us. Rain splashed through the bars of the window and the sky lit up like fireworks followed by a crack like a rifle shot. Aren't we going to slow down? Faith said, tremulously. We ought to, I said. They're hurting the horses driving them like this. Do you hear that? Faith said. Music! I don't hear anything over this noise, Henry said. Me either, I said. The wheels hit something in the road, and we were all sickeningly airborne. We held our breath, hearts pounding, until the carriage hit dirt again and kept going. The rattle was deafening. The bars across the window broke loose in one large section, and the entire hunk of metal went spinning away. Odd noises played around the edges of my hearing, sailing past in gusts to compete with the racket of the bouncing carriage, the harsh cawing of birds, the baying of hounds, a great host of pounding hooves. I stood up, and leaned out the window to try and see out. Henry was behind me, so I stuck my hand to him, and he grabbed it without hesitation. He wasn't any larger than I was, but it still helped to have someone to hold on to. With one hand on the edge of the window, and him bracing the other, I leaned out to get a better look around. Justice, Faith said from inside the carriage. What are you doing? It was a monsoon out here. Woods flashed by, glimmering darkly in the rain, while a white-hot bolt cut raggedly across the sky. The lantern had fallen off, too, leaving everything black around us. The wind wailed and mourned. There had to be a crash. No carriage could fly along a dirt road like this and not crash. I could barely make out the shape, leaning out of the driver's box. You've got to slow down, I shouted. Father turned and looked back in my direction, but not at me, at something behind us. His hat was gone, leaving his hair plastered to his skull and water running off in rivulets. His face was a fish belly white mask of fear with eyes shot wide open. He didn't respond to my shout, only pointed the dripping barrel of a revolver at something in the sky behind us and fired until the gun clicked empty. Seeing Father's terrified face, more than anything before, brought the terror home. I knew he'd fought fearlessly in the Crimea. A navy man's life was filled with stormy seas, artillery fire, engagements at sea. They wouldn't give so many medals to a coward, would they? I looked back just in time to see a flashing arc of lightning strike the back of the carriage. The carriage twisted, and I fell back inside. Everyone was screaming the world spun and twisted and banged and crashed as we fell end over end. It seemed like it went on forever, bashing into each other over and over, maybe being packed in like sardines saved us because there wasn't as much room to fall. Maybe. One last crash and we all fell into each other again, hard, as the carriage banged over one last time and then finally lay still. The horse's hoof beats, still running, gradually faded into the distance. Rain poured down through the open door above us. We'd lost the door somewhere in the crash. Another flash filled the sky. The storm that had knocked us half to pieces wasn't done yet. Not by a long shot. Chapter 3 The Wild Hunt I couldn't move, couldn't breathe, and something pressed on my chest hard enough to crush the life right out of me. But I fought. I was still alive, at least. God knew how, but I was going to fight to keep it that way. I wound myself out from beneath the crushing weight, which turned out to be Henry and part of a broken wheel. Henry wasn't moving. A terrible image of my family lying broken and dead in the road burned itself into my mind's eye. What if they were all dead and I was the only one left? I put a hand on Henry's chest and I could feel him breathing. Thank God. That was two of us. What about the rest? Another burst of lightning showed me the hole above us, a flashing square where the carriage door had been torn off. Then it faded. Water from the rain splattered down next to me in the darkness. My hand found the horse chest piece in the pocket of my dressing gown. I knew this was all connected somehow, to that night in the woods. What happened? Henry's voice sounded younger than ever. We crashed, I said. The interior of the carriage echoed and everything was very dark, and I wasn't sure where he was. Justice? Faith said. Faith, I said. Thank God. What about Mother? Can you see? Mother's here, Faith said. She's all right, I think. Just dazed. The next flash of light showed the three of us, Faith, Henry, and me, looking around. I picked out Mother's still shape. Hold still, I said to Henry and shifted to get my foot up on his shoulder. Ow! What are you doing? Ow! I need to look around, I said. I ignored his further protests and climbed up through the open hole above us and looked. Falling water hissed on the trees, dripped on my face, and plunked down on the muddy road. My hair, nightgown, and coat were soaked through in seconds, and the wind slashed across my face. I knuckled the water from my eyes and looked around. Rain and darkness veiled everything, making distorted shapes of the trees. The road ahead ran up a short hill, and then curved to the right into the trees. Father, anyone? When I looked back the way we'd come, lightning drenched the sky. I didn't see father, or cane. But I got a good look, at long last, at what was coming for us. A horde of hunters riding on a great black storm cloud in the sky. The cloud was fearsome on its own, a long black expanse hanging so low that it brushed the tops of the trees. The cloud moved forward with an inevitable, terrible slowness, uncoiling like squid ink on the ocean floor, The sharp tang of rain came with it and the underside of the cloud flashed with lightning that arced down into the forest. Some of the trees were burning now, even in the rain. Flocks of crows darted in and out of the edges, all of them screaming like mad women. Riding on top of the cloud, bearing down on us as if running down a slope, was a hunting party. A pack of bone-white dogs led the hunt, charging down through the sloped confusion of smoke, barking and howling to set your teeth on edge. Their eyes were sockets of burning coal, filled with the bloodlust of the chase. The riders thundered behind, men and women, wild-haired and pale-skinned, naked and wailing. They rode sooty mounts with black holes for eyes and the toothy grins of sand sharks. Black streamers flew behind them, like penance. In the centre of the horde, an enormous rider paused on a smoky rise and blew a horn of bone. The long, clear note drifted across the barrage of noise that shot fear straight through my heart. The rider's head was shaggy, his face bearded and his mouth filled with fangs. Antlers rose up from his head in graceful, tined arcs. At first, I thought it was the fairy king I'd seen in the woods so long ago but it wasn't him at all. The hunt leader looked similar though, as if they shared a kinship. Whatever he was, he wasn't human. All I could think of was running, only there was nowhere to run to, no escape. Another musical note cut across the din, answering the horn with honey and velvet. I spun around to look further up the road and saw a soft yellow light coming and coming fast. Mr. Sands rode out of the darkness on that magnificent white horse brandishing the unlikeliest of weapons, a violin. Every time he dragged the bow across the strings, it threw out shards of light like an active forge, and his green cat's eyes danced in the light. I could feel the waves of heat come off him as he rode past the overturned carriage and took up position between us and the hunt. The leader of the hunt blew his horn again in challenge, and the hunt surged forward. Mr. Sands answered, his violin soaring. His hair was a rage of lambent yellow as he sat on that wondrous horse and played with all the glorious abandon of a brush fire. The sparks from Mr. Sands' violin didn't fall to the ground but drifted around him like attendant fireflies, hissing in the rain and casting off a powerful scent of burning metal. He turned back and forth, his horse answering commands without any need for reins, trying to hedge the fairy hunting party out. Behind Mr. Sands, I could see another figure riding behind, slumped against Sands' back, unconscious. Who the figure was or how they stayed on while Sands' horse was prancing around that way, I'll never know. I was crouching on the side of the overturned carriage, still stunned into immobility by the scene in front of me. I shrieked when something pulled on my coat. Justice, Father said. It was his hand on my coat. He was standing in the muddy road below me, reaching up. Sands won't be able to hold them long, Father shouted. What about the others? He jerked his chin at the overturned carriage. Can they climb out? I, I don't know, I said. I yelled down into the carriage. We need to move. We can't possibly move, Faith's voice said from below. Her white hands gripped the edge of the wet doorframe as she hauled herself partially up. Her head rose slowly out of the carriage while the rest of her was still inside. Probably she was standing on Henry's shoulders, like I had. We just crashed for God's sake, Faith said. And God knows what kind of injury... Her voice trailed off as she turned and stared at the flickering, fantastically unbelievable scene of Hunt and Magician facing off before us. The leader's horn sounded again. Faith swallowed and nodded. We have to move, she said. Faith and Henry boosted Mother up, and I got hold of her hands and pulled until a burning sensation tore through my shoulders. But somehow, we got her up. Then Faith and Henry clambered up after. We repeated the routing to get Mother off the carriage and down into the muddy road. But she was too heavy and Mother and I toppled into the muddy road. Finally, Faith and Henry got down and helped me get her up. She was barely conscious, and we had to keep her propped up between Henry and me. Somehow, even in that bedraggled state, Mother managed to cling to the medicine bag. Here, Faith said, taking Mother's arm from me. Even now, she didn't trust me. Justice, Father said, grabbing my arm. I need you to be strong. Get your mother and the others up this road. At the top, there's a gate. Go through that, close the gate, and you'll be safe. Can you do that for me? His eyes were the same clear and determined blue I'd always known. Yes, sir, I said, up the road. Gate at the top. Don't forget to close the gate, understand? Don't stop for anything until you're all behind that gate. Yes, I said then. Aye, aye. God only knew how I'd get them up that hill, but I'd do it. Good, he said, turning away. His coat was gone, his waistcoat torn in shreds, his hair wind-tossed. He held a black revolver in his hand, fishing more cartridges out of his pants pocket as he spoke. I rushed over to where Faith and Henry were holding Mother up, and then looked back. The floating embers from Mr. Sand's violin rose up to meet the rolling black cloud of the hunt above the trees. The yellow dots opened up, unfurling serpentine bodies and angular bat wings. Their eyes were pinpoints of white hot flame, and each beat of their wings spilled a cascade of sparks and ripples of heat in defiance of the rain. Dragons, I breathed. Tiny dragons. The rushing line of hounds yelped and skidded to a halt, shrinking away from the rippling wall of heat in front of them. The hunters behind had to jerk to a stop to avoid trampling them, and the front edge of the horde came to a slow, chaotic stop. The storm cloud stopped with them, slowly flattening out in either direction. Two of the hounds had skirted far enough out to the edge and jumped the 30 or 40 feet down into the wet ground on the side of the road with a sharp growl. Mr. Sands was still casting forth firefly dragons with every pull of the bow across the violin strings. The horse he was on danced, keeping a careful distance between itself and the advancing hounds. On the horse's back, behind Sands, the form slumped against Sands' back was alternately lit and covered in darkness. It was an older boy, with black curly hair that I knew well, and a pale face. I hadn't seen him in nearly half a year but I still recognized Benedict, our brother. Benedict, Faith shouted at me. She'd seen him too. Sands must have gone and collected him after leaving us and then brought him to meet us back here in time for all of this. The light flashed again and I got another look. Benedict was clearly unconscious. It was a miracle that the magnificent white horse could dance back and forth the way it did without throwing either Sands or Benedict, but it did. We have to get Mother safe, I shouted at Faith. Father, aiming very carefully, squeezed off two shots and two of the spectral hounds went down. A massive shower of sparks flew up from Mr. Sand's firefly dragons, but the cloud and horde were spilling over the fireflies like a flood over a dam, dropping snarling hunters and hounds down into the road. Faith and I rushed after the rest of my family, who'd gone a short way up the road, but now stopped and stared at the fantastic warfare unfolding in front of them. Go, I shouted. Mother suddenly raised her head. No, she rasped. I'm not going along with this madness anymore. Whatever he has waiting for us up the road, I don't want it. We'll go into the woods, find shelter and hide until daylight. He'll never find us there. I looked at the thick dark woods, flickering with light. We might be able to hide in there, which would ruin Father's plans entirely. But Faith and Henry were nodding at Mother's words, and I realized that I was going to fail Father right when he needed me most. I didn't think I could stand toe-to-toe arguing with Mother, especially not if Faith and Henry agreed with her. Instead, I hastily shoved aside Faith and grabbed Mother by the hand and elbow. It was the same hand that still clutched, amazingly, the medicine bag. I hauled on bag and arm together, hoping that Henry would go along with it. This way, I shouted, pulling for all I was worth. It worked better than I dared hope. Mother shrieked and came stumbling after me, so concerned at the possibility of losing her medicine bag that she, in her adult state, seemed to forget all about wanting to go into the woods. Henry gamely held her up on the other side. Faith cast one dark look back at the battle, clamped her jaw, and followed. Father was back there, facing some kind of horde out of legend, but I pushed that from my mind. Father had asked me to get them up the hill, and I'd bloody well see it done. We passed around a clump of trees, and the incline of the road increased sharply. We couldn't see the battle behind us anymore, but we could see flashes of light against the night sky, and hear shots and screams, barking and the call of a hunting horn, as well as fire sizzling in the rain. My legs felt numb, and my breath was already coming in gasps. But I forced myself on through the dark and wet. The storm rumbled behind us angrily. My coat and nightdress were soaked and heavy with rain and freezing to the touch. We slogged on through the mud, up, 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 forever, it seemed. Our ragged breathing as we struggled and the rain and the thunder behind us were the only noises. The forest petered out gradually, leaving a wide expanse of wet fields on either side. A craggy shape rose up ahead, a darker patch of black lines in the gray all around. A black, heavy, iron gate. It was tall, nearly nine or ten feet, and ugly and rough, with a huge arch and fence as far as we could see in both directions. The bars were as thick as my wrist, and both the fence and the arch had barbs on top. Someone really didn't want visitors putting up a fence like that. We stood facing the gate, hollowed and bled dry of all emotion. The gate had a lock on it, large enough to keep Germany out. I don't like it, Mother muttered to herself. Don't, don't go in. We have to, I said. I tried pushing at it, and we all gasped as it swung open. It's not locked, Henry said. Come on then. Henry and I hauled mother through and Faith, still hesitating, finally followed. Hold her up, I said to Henry. I have to close the gate. The heavy bars felt cold and rough to the touch and made my fingers tingle. I ignored that and pushed it closed anyway. The ponderous metal gate clanged closed with an oddly musical sound. Suddenly, we could no longer hear the storm behind us. The night was tomb silent and black. We stood on a white gravel drive that ran up towards the blocky shadow of a large mansion. Smooth, wet lawns with evenly spaced black trees lined the way. Impossibly, it wasn't raining inside the gate. Night had fallen, hidden by the storm. Peering through the bars, we should have been able to see the lights down the slope. But all we could see were the dark velvety folds of a valley swathed in darkness benedict was back there somewhere in that silent darkness and farther movement on the lawn caught my eye and i saw a pair of shining eyes they watched us unflinchingly another pair appeared from behind one of the elms and then another and another dozens of pairs of glowing eyes looked at us out of the gloom where faith said have you brought us? Justice, what kind of place is this? With a flicker of movement, the glowing eyes disappeared. With a sudden thud of hoofs, Mr. Sands crested the hill on the other side of the gate. He was only a dozen feet away, but he was caught in a torrential downpour as we stood in a dry, clear night. Not a drop of rain even touched us. Mr. Sands, had Benedict slung across the horse's neck. Oh, thank heaven, Faith said. I pushed at the gate, but it wouldn't open. It had opened before, but this time, when I pushed, there was a sharp, painful tingle, and I snatched my hand back. Father came stumbling out of the darkness on foot, just behind them, the revolver dangling weakly in his hand. He sang a short, complex trill of notes, it echoed something of the melody Mr. Sands had played on the violin before. The heavy black locks snapped open, and they came through. Father caught my eye. Good, he said with a nod. You got them all here. I felt a swelling of pride. The boy's leg needs attention, Mr. Sands said. It's by lightning. He and father shared a significant look. Father carefully lifted away the torn flap of Benedict's trousers to reveal blackened skin. I'll take him. You'd better check the perimeter. Yes, Mr. Sands said. What about Cain? Cain knew the risks. Father slid Benedict off the back of Mr. Sands' horse and cradled him in his arms. We need to get him up to the house. He'll be safe here, Mr. Sands said to us you'll all be safe here. This, father said, is Stormholt. He started up the gravel drive. We stared at each other, Faith, Henry, and me. Mother was sagging between Henry and me, out on her feet again. There didn't seem to be any other choice. It was either Stormholt or the Storm.
0: Oh man, when that carriage crashed, I didn't know if they'd get away. The thunderstorm was quite scary, and those wild riders, they weren't even human. I can't wait to see how life in Stormholt will turn out for Justice and her family. So don't forget to subscribe to CamCat Unwrapped. If you don't want to miss a beat, listen now on the audiobook platform of your choice. All our books are also available in print and ebook formats on camcatbooks.com or wherever books are sold. Before you go, please take a moment to leave us a review on your preferred podcast platform. Thank you so, so much. Camcat Unwrapped also offers other Camcat books as podcasts. Check out our interviews with authors, editors, and other bookworms and our background episodes where we unwrap exclusive content relating to our books. Tune in again to CamCat Unwrapped, because CamCat Unwrapped is where book lovers meet.